expressed on the following broadcasts do not necessarily reflect those of KHLT, Take 12 Radio, or our affiliates. The opinions on this show should not be considered as medical, psychological, or professional advice and are those of the host, co-host, and guest. Take 12 Radio and KHLT Recovery Broadcasting are not affiliated with any particular 12-step fellowship. Welcome to Entitled to Overcome, Exploring Solutions for Life Today, a presentation of Take 12 Recovery Radio. And now, here are your co-hosts, Dave Fleming and the Monty Man. Sing it, Dave. Dave Fleming's in the house. Yeah, don't be telling me you're a victim. No way, baby. Welcome to the Tink 12 Recovery Radio Show's episode of Entitled to Overcome, Solutions for Life Today Today with Mr. Dave Vid Fleming. What's up, Monty? Hey, brother. What's going down, man? What's happening? It's like springtime outside. It is like springtime. Maybe it is springtime outside. Seems Maybe like we got we got a couple of daffodils growing, the only flowers in our entire yard, one behind the shed and one out in the front yard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, listen. Uh Dante said the hottest places in hell are reserved for those who are in a period of mutual crisis and maintain neutrality. In other words, <laughs> things are bad, but they don't do anything. They don't take either side. They just sit and rest on their laurels and don't do anything. And here at Take 12 Recovery Radio, we are doing something. So we must not be an L. No. (laughs) But but really, really, there's a lot of people in the world, especially with, with, with this whole addiction thing, there's a lot of people just going, oh, yeah, that's too bad. And not standing up and not doing anything. We have a guest right, on today. Right. We have a guest on today. Um, I think it's the first time we've actually had a guest on Entitled to Overcome. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, who has done something about that because she's had a personal experience in it. We're going to be talking with her uh, here in just a few minutes. But first, Dave, I think it's time if we hear the ticking of the clock. There it is. That's right. What time is it? Oh, it's time for Dave and Monty's icebreaker. That's right. Zippity doodah. They're a mess to clean up. Uh, yeah, it's all over the place. Hey, listen, there are many ways to rob a bank, Dave, <laughs> but most of them uh, can all be broken down into two general stages. So first you make a surprising threat of force to the bank staff to give you money, right? You just kind of walk up to the counter, you know, this is a robbery. Uh, Then you take the money and then, you know, the the element of surprise is really the concept here. Uh, Giving banks even a minute to prepare, prepare for your antics is guaranteed to result in countermeasures ranging from security guards and secret alarm buttons to full lockdowns. Well, case in point, Dave, these two be, would-be robbers from Fairfield, Connecticut, tried to adapt a novel approach to the noble art of bank heisting. 
Albert Bailey and his juvenile accomplice, which I won't name, <laughs> didn't much feel like going the traditional route, you know, that this is a robbery thing with guns and masks and all that jazz, <laughs> but rather they adopted a more gentlemanly approach. They called ahead. Oh, Lord. <laughs> The reservation. Yeah, they called ahead to alert the bank of their upcoming shenanigans. Uh, Bailey began by calling the bank to let them know that this robbery business was totally going down. After presumably being put on hold for an uncomfortable amount of time, he told the person on the other end that if the bank wouldn't give him $100,000 in large bills to his accomplice, who would soon be popping by to pick it up, there would be trouble. <laughs> Wow. Well, the the outcome was obvious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Call ahead. Call ahead banking. Yeah. It's kind of like ordering a pizza. Well, I got another one for you. Just two, just two this week. Uh, Donald Chip Pugh. They call him Chip. Hi, Chip. Uh, might that be the smartest person in any giving room? Uh, because, well, for starters... He was wanted by the police for failing to appear in court for his DUI case. Oh, and he was also a person of interest in an unrelated arson and vandalism case. And those were just the ones that were currently being looked into. So the Lima, Ohio Police Department dug up an old mugshot of the guy and they posted it on uh, social media, on Facebook, just to see if they'd get any, you know, any bites, right? Well, they got some bites, all right. Uh, Mr. Pugh didn't like the old picture. <laughs> he did the most logical. Yeah, he did the most logical thing a wanted fugitive would do, and sent a more current one <laughs> to the cops, and said, "Here's another photo. This one's terrible." <laughs> wow. <laughs> Not uh, that, this. This one. Where's my bell? Did, oh. did he give him the, his address too? Um, well, <laughs> not only did the personality, um, uh, profile thing change and get, get updated. What happened was when he sent it to him, he sent an email and they tracked down his IP address. Sure, sure. Right. And they, they just went and picked him up. Dope. <laughs> I don't get it. What happened? It's kind of like, you know, you, you ever hear the, 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 the ones where they they send you a letter in the mail and they say, you know, you've won a TV. Come down here. At, oh, right, right. On Tuesday at three o'clock and pick it up. Yeah, and then they're waiting for you. They're waiting for you. Yeah, surprise, surprise. Oh. Jump in the paddy wagon. My goodness sakes! All right, well, that closes out our icebreaker for this episode. Entitled to overcome. Solutions for life today. Don't go away. We'll be back with our guest right after this. Trisha's having a sleepover tonight. Can I go? I wonder about Lucy's friends. What should I say? I know you're only 10, but one of these days a friend will offer you a drink. And alcohol at your age can lead to so many things. None of them good. So can I go to the sleepover? Lucy? I want you to promise me something. I finished my homework. <laughs> Bigger promise. If there's any drinking, I want you to say, no thanks, not my thing. Mom. I promise you, 
Your real friends won't care. Deal? Sure. Really? I promise, Mom. They really do hear you. Did you pack your toothbrush? For tips on how to start the talk, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. A public service message from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And now, back to more Solutions for Life Today with Dave Fleming and the Monty Man. Welcome back to the show. You know, Monty. Yes, Dave. That service announcement is all fine and dandy, but that doesn't isn't reality most times. Well, you know, but sometimes you most times is is the uh, is really the key phrase there because I agree with you. But parents that don't talk to their kids at all about it are in trouble. Right. You know, and and you know, we had the talk several of on several topics, obviously, with our two boys, right? And it's really funny because um, they both understand that genetically they could be predisposed to alcoholism, right? Because of me, because of dad, right? Um, but our youngest, who's getting married in May, it's funny because we overheard him talking to a friend that said. Yeah, when I was younger, I was diagnosed with fetal alcohol syndrome, so I can't drink. And Marsha and I are looking at each other going, what? He was never diagnosed with, well, somewhere, somewhere in the talk about inheriting genetic properties of alcoholism and so forth, he got it confused. Right. <laughs> But he's never had a drink in his life, and he has absolutely no desire to. And, you know, of course, he's one of the youth leaders at at a large, large church here in town. Right. And he's seen a lot of his buddies. He's buried a couple of them, you know. Um, uh, so if, you, if you're not talking with your kids at all, you, you know, may not be the wisest yeah, thing. Yeah, you guys, you, you got to give them something. But what we used to, what we did with our kids is we, we kind of, I mean, I've kind of had some experience in this yeah. field. And so it was like. You know, you know how peer pressure is, and mm-hmm. a lot of times, you know, mm-hmm. you, you get bullied, you know, or right. coerced into uh, that. So we we always made it up, told our kids that, you know, uh, to call us, or, uh, you know, we had cell phones then. Yeah. Right. And right. and just to you know, even send a text. Uh, we had a code. And if we got the we got the code, we'd just call and say, "Yeah, we got to come pick up." So you know. Or pick up our daughter because there's a family emergency or whatever. That way they save face with the friends and they don't have to give in to that peer pressure. Right. Because uh, that, that sometimes is is kind of a horrific experience. Yeah. Especially at, in elementary or te- in uh, high school. Yeah. Because it's, you know, it's pretty, there's a lot going on there and there's a lot of bullying going on uh, on both sides. You bet. Both, you know. Yeah, you bet there is. Which is a great segue into the show today. Um, because we're talking about our children and the, the addiction crisis. We know that, that addiction is the number one health crisis in our world today. Recovery from addiction gets the least amount of uh, attention due to stigma. One of the things, uh, and the reason I quoted Dante earlier, is one of the things that we do here at Take 12 Radio, uh, and I think we do it very well, uh, is help to break that stigma by talking about these issues and bringing them to the light. 
And uh, sitting in front of me on the desk right now, uh, and you just finished reading the book, is The Weight of a Feather. And the author is our guest today, and that is author Linda Hacker Arouse. And uh, she chronicles the relationship between a mother and her son on his journey into a very dark, dark world of addiction. Um, in all the way through into his later years of recovery. So Linda's on the phone with me. Linda, welcome to Take 12 Recovery Radio. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm so glad to be here with you. Yeah, we're, we're honored to have you on. And um, I, I, I just want, I want to give out your website. Uh, I'm going to do it a couple times here, but it's opiatecrisiscommentary.com. And uh, folks, uh, you need to bookmark that and, and, and check it out. Uh, Linda, you, you guys have really gone through it. I mean, you have firsthand experience. Um, people can talk about this stuff and they can watch videos and watch A&E specials and that kind of thing. But when you've walked through it, there's nothing quite like it. True. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So first of all, uh, take, take us through the very first day you realized Something was up with your son. Well, when he was in high school, uh, we suspected um, that he, when he went out to, uh, with his buddies that they were drinking. And he had a couple incidents. He had one really bad incident of driving while drinking. And I, I really thought, well, that is the red flag. You know, when you put your hand in the fire and you get burnt once, you don't go back. Mm. But he did uh, again and again. And then it kind of slipped into pot and then you know it was sort of up and down it, in some ways things were directly in our face and you know we were uh, one of the sets of parents that you know we always talked about the problems with drinking and driving it, it's not it was a subject that was commonly talked about in our house but the moment uh, where I realized he was really into something heavy is when he sat down with me and said Oh, Mom, I've got to tell you something. And I'm thinking, oh, here, this is going to be about money. And instead he said, I want you to know I'm addicted to heroin. And it was like a siren went off in my head. I, I, you know, I couldn't believe it. It just, I mean, how did that enter my world, our world? Um, and so that was kind of the beginning of trying to find help. And then I was so naive. You know, I, I actually had run a prevention program in a in a school for a few years. I, I was aware of things, but when I tried to get help, it was one obstacle after another after another. And that, you know, when you have a child with an addiction, you deal with, with two fronts. One is what's going on with your own house and your own family and your own child. And the other front is the whole system where you're trying to get help and, and you find that, no one's paving the road for you. It's almost like you have to doggedly fight to get some kind of, of effective treatment. So that that was kind of in short what what the journey was about. Mm-hmm. Um, did you do, do you attribute the fact that he that he felt comfortable enough to actually sit you down and tell you this to the relationship that you had built with him growing up? Well, I I think that one of the things that's key, really, to recovery is maintaining that relationship. And we had always had that relationship, and and part of it may have been that 
you know, it was kind of a burden in his mind to know that and, mm. and for me to go on without knowing that. So um, I think he wanted help, but I think he wanted just relief from, from the whole burden that he was carrying himself because he, didn't, he himself didn't know what to do with it. Right, um, right. His, his life was spiraling downward, but he didn't know how to, to make that whole spiral stop or move in a different direction. Now, now you you hold a master's in social work, do you not? I do. You do, and and so some people, bless their hearts, some people would be going, well, wh- you know, how could you have missed this? How could you have not understood this? How how come you didn't see any red flags before even the drinking episode? What would you say to them? Well, I think that. Um Certain um, diagnoses, let's say, have uh, are, they're not predetermined to go in the in the down the route of addiction, but they're closely associated with it. My my own son is adopted, um, so the, we have no um, understanding or knowledge about what his, his original family right. consisted of. But but he had ADHD and he was very impulsive. And that was something that we worked on. Um, that was something that we tried to address through counseling and, um, you know, in and, and just kind of one-to-one conversations. But he was always a person who liked new things, to try things. And we always thought that was a good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd try any sport, would pick up a book, love different documentaries on different subjects. We didn't see that as a negative thing, but part of trying new things eventually became trying pot, trying drugs. Um, so there there was a pattern, but, you know, I don't carry any guilt over uh, the idea that it was never discussed, it was never talked to, we never tried to address it. Yeah. Um, we did. And, and I think that's one of the things that's, that's harmful in the situation right now, is that people are quick to blame the parents, um, saying, oh, they were negligent, it came from a dysfunctional family, they were codependent, you know, I'm in contact with many, many parents who have children with addiction, and that's just not true. You know, those people that followed the same formula everyone else did, um, but that formula didn't work. And then we have other children who, who, you know, we followed the formula with them, and it did work. But, you know, there was something unique there, and I think people need to recognize that and stop looking towards the parents and trying to place the blame there when it's a much more complex situation. Dave, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I was going to ask you, Linda, if you could share like what some of your experiences were uh, as a parent navigating through uh, the, the, treatment, <laughs> the treatment world and the, the world of the professional counselor and, and addiction treatment. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I I will say that we met some wonderful people along the way, but we also met some ran into terrible situations. Here in New York State, eighty percent of the people who went to an ER for help with any kind of drug uh, issue were denied treatment. We were denied treatment over and over and over again, and you're denied treatment there. Where do you go? Um, and the other problem that we continually ran into was this kind of unwritten policy, you need to fail first. You don't get to a higher level of care till you sit in counseling forever. I mean, years, hours. Mm. Uh, you know, and 
I tried to address it with counselors because my son always signed the paper so I could I could talk to them and say, you know, how long do we keep doing the same thing that isn't working before we step outside of that mindset and say, why don't we try something else? You know, a higher level of service, uh, an inpatient, uh, you know, something other than logging in more and more and more hours with peer counseling, which is what it turned out to be many of the times. Um, was it necessarily um, with, you know, a person who was certified counselor? It was in these groups where people kind of went over what they sometimes call war stories um, without any kind of direction to to recovery. So that was incredibly frustrating. Also, the rules around it. Um, he had by, by that time lost his license, so the only people, and we live in the country, so there's no public transportation. So the only way to get him there was for us to constantly take time off from work, et cetera. And, you know, one time we ran into, uh, there had been an accident, we got stopped there and arrived late. And it's like, nope, you arrived late, that's irresponsible, Your, you know, your case is dismissed. It's like, really, it wasn't even yeah. his fault. It was, wasn't even our fault. We were on a one-way street with an accident that was blocked by the police. I, you know, th- that kind of lack of compassion for people who were trying so hard to get on the right path. Yeah, that was incredibly frustrating to me. It, it when as I listen to you talk, it, it's something we talk refer to in in uh, in treatment uh, recovery. It's it's kind of like you know the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Right. Oh, that, that's, that's perfect. Yeah, that's it perfectly. Yeah, and it's it's been my experience. I, I'm myself have have gone through uh, addiction and recovery myself. I've got over 14 years uh, of sobriety, but uh, I've people I've talked to and the people I've worked with uh, tell a similar story about this revolving door, going to treatment, not really getting any help, just kind of go, running, doing the routine, and then completing the program. You basically done your hours and now you're you've graduated but nothing's changed and so then there's a revolving door of people going in in and out uh, constantly i had one guy uh a couple years ago tell me that he had been in treatment like a hundred times i don't know if he's exaggerating that but that that tells me there's something you know there's something wrong with the system if you speak your groups three times a week right um you can run up to 100 sessions really fast that really aren't helping you. Right. What, what I think is really important in this whole thing is that when a per- there's windows of opportunity. It certainly was for my son and for other people, too, where they're willing. They're not maybe committed, but they're willing to, to try some kind of treatment, and it needs to be available. It can't be all these loopholes. Well, if you go to counseling for three months, we'll look into possibly, or if you do this, there's always this if, 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 or, you know, we can give you an appointment two weeks down the road. Um, right now I work on a, I volunteer actually for a helpline, and I'm very committed to doing it because through the, the program, we get people into treatment within 24 hours, um, and it works. And it's incredibly successful. And I think that's part of the problem is this delay that's always there. Mm-hmm. Um, because just because someone's ready to do it in, you know, this week doesn't mean that next week down the road they're going to have that same mindset. And, you know, unfortunately, people die. 
in that lag of time. Right. I yep. know um, when I uh, when I was working in uh, Minnesota a few years back, they were in the process of changing the system up so that these treatments, the treatment centers, um, actually would. They were there. I don't know if they 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 started doing this, but they were moving in the direction of the treatment centers having a detox center, so that and then when the, as soon as they went through detox, they went right into the treatment. So instead of having a separate detox center, they actually would have detox in the treatment center, and then the clients would go right into into treatment. So they would. Well, I think that makes sense. Yeah, it, it, it would save save some lives that way because. Like I've seen it happen. I don't know how many times happens all the time is that delay. You know, uh, a friend that works uh, in another part of Oregon and it was telling me that they're a month out. Like they, they don't even, even if they were to do an assessment on somebody, they don't even have any openings for treatment for a whole month. Well, in that month, that person's probably not going to make it. Wow. Wow. Uh, listeners, the book is The Weight of a Feather, A Mother's Journey Through the Opiate Addiction Crisis. The website is opiate crisis uh, commentary, excuse me, opiatecrisiscommentary.com. Um, I was reviewing a video uh, yesterday called Pleasure Unwoven, uh, and it really addressed pretty much the the whole purpose of the video was addressing probably one of the most important questions about addiction that we'll ever ask. Is it a choice or is it a disease? And the author showed a really compelling argument for the choice argument, probably the best I've ever seen. Uh, but there was something very wrong with it. And then he explained, um, did, did, did you come up against other people in your life that were telling you, well, your son just needs to make better choices? I mean, if if you guys raised him differently um, and didn't consider the um, the addictive illness part of it at all, but just kind of pointed their finger at you and said it's all about choice? I think a lot of people do that. I didn't, I didn't uh, you know, other than my husband, I didn't have my family standing with me. I never talked to them about it because I knew they were going to be judgmental right. and not helpful. Um, and certainly in the community, there are many people who think like that. Yeah. And I think people understand the concept that it's biological more than they understand the concept that it's a disease. Because mm-hmm. we think of diseases in a, in a whole different way, and it's hard for people to wrap their heads around that. Um, but I do think that people could accept that, you know, there's something that's biologically wired differently. And, and in some ways, I think it would be more helpful to use that kind of language than some of the language that they're using. And, of course, then there are the people who say, okay, you know, you went through addiction, but you could make that choice now. You know, it's back on the the person with the substance abuse disorder. You know, you could make that decision now, but you're not. So, it, it to me, is a very fuzzy area. Um, people who have, uh, for example, people who have read my book, complete strangers, have written to me and said, "I never really understood it." So mm-hmm. I read your book and mm-hmm. saw what you went through. I never got it. And I think it's hard for people. They look at statistics, and the statistics are alarming and data, but it somehow doesn't bring it home in the same way as knowing it personally or or reading about somebody who went through it personally. Then suddenly, 
um, there's a new recognition of how it happens and why it doesn't end quickly, etc. Right. Right. You you make mention that that even through all the obstacles that you guys had to jump through dealing with uh, treatment providers and all that, that your son actually made it to recovery despite that stuff. Uh, share share that with us. I believe that's true, and and quite honestly, I give the glory to God on that one. Um, that you know, he he had, towards the end, became involved in a fellowship himself. And I think that part, that helped kind of strengthen him and look for another options. Um, I think for us, uh, our own faith was an important part of getting through it. I remember sure. sitting out back and saying, you know, do it whatever way you want, guys, but you could just, like, could you do it now, <laughs> this minute? I don't know if I could take more. I don't know if we'll ever come back together. It's like that moment of, of like, ha-ha, mm, right. you know, where are we going? And, you know, looking back, there's lots of things that happened in our path, and certainly if you've read the book, you know, the ending is something that's very difficult to explain um, in, you know, sort of common terms. Um, so that was an important part of our, our journey also. Go ahead, Dave. You can ask. Well, I was just going to say it it sounds like the uh, his struggle with the whole detox was was a huge yeah component in in his recovery or or in his addiction. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, talk about the detox thing. Yeah, I am curious about that. Well, you know, when he went off to detox, we really didn't know much about it. Keep in mind that. I still, at this point, did not know anyone else who had ever been through this. Right. Um, you know, you can read what you read on the Internet or in books, but um, insofar as anybody giving me a firsthand uh, idea of what it was all about, I had no idea. And he went, actually, from from jail directly to detox. And I think, you know, it's hard to talk someone else talk about someone else's journey, because besides mine, of course, he had his own mental and spiritual journey he went through, but there must have been some kind of readiness, because when that opportunity opened for him, he took it. And, you know, he stayed there, and, it, you know, he had his challenges there, too. Not long after he went in, my, my father, which was, which was his grandfather, died. Um, and he thought long and hard about just leaving at that point to come home, but stayed. Um, and I think the people there were really compassionate about that. They actually sent a person um, to accompany him, to bring him to the funeral, and I think that was important. He saw, you know, it was more than, than a job to those people. They really cared and understood what a challenge that was for him. So that was part of it. Um, and he had people that uh, worked with him that, I, you know, I felt were well-qualified. Um, they certainly, when we came to visit, embraced us and our thoughts. And I think that was, was all working towards kind of success in the, the recovery process. Now, now he actually obtained some milestones and then would relapse, right? He, yes. Well, there were bumps along the road, definitely. Um, 
I don't know. This idea of relapse is difficult because some people describe it as actually using again, and some people describe it as picking up some of the behaviors associated with it, sure. in like lying sure. and manipulation and money. Um, so, yeah, he sort of fell into those behaviors. Um, he didn't at the time actually fall into using, but mm-hmm. it's definitely, you know, sliding downhill. Because we we know that relapse, you know, relapse many times is occurring, and the addict doesn't even know it. It's not even conscious. I've I've heard that. Yeah. 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 Wow. So, what does your son think about you writing a book about him and your experience with him? Well, that was very important to me that he'd be on board with it, and I wasn't planning to write this, and just. You know, as I mentioned in my preface, it, it kind of nagged at me like it, I needed to do this um, and not just walk away from it when I knew millions of other people were going through the same thing I had gone through. Mm-hmm. So I, I wrote 20 pages and I gave them to him and I said, look, you know, here's where I'm going. I will never, I don't have to do this. I will never do it if you're not on board with this. But what do you think? And so, you know, he was sort of like, well... I don't know, to become that public about my life. And I'm like, yeah, I feel the same way. I'm becoming public about my most intimate thoughts here right. also. So, um, and then I had gotten a little further into it and um, immediately got offered, uh, had an offer to publish it. And I thought at that point, boy, I really got to finish it. And I gave a copy to every single one of my family. And I said, you need to read it. You need to give me feedback. You need to be on board or tell me what needs to be changed. If you feel I haven't been honest or haven't represented it correctly, you need to tell me this um, because I'm not going to accept the the offer for publication until we're all on board. So, so they did. And the most important one, of course, was my son, who is revealed um, more than anyone else. And he finally sat down with me and he said, Mom, you know what? This is the way I'm thinking about it. If you think that writing this book is going to help other people, then you go ahead and do it. And I, you know, I felt very proud of him in saying that. And that was, in fact, my motivation for writing it was to help other people. So it was a go from there. So, so how have your and on board? So how have, how have your family members received this? I mean. Obviously, they well. I'm going to take a stab here and say that they probably look at things a little differently now that they've read the book. Um, unfortunately, um, most of my family died within that period of time. Um, period of time, but right. the ones, the the one that's left, and kind of cousins have been very supportive and said, "Nice, I can't believe you were going through this, and none of us knew it." Right. Right. And, you know, and, and, and sort of saying, I feel so bad. Mm. I, I never reached out to you. And it's like, don't feel bad. I never talked about it. Mm-hmm. I, it was not something that I that you could have helped me with. Um, so don't feel bad. But, but definitely, I, that's the kind of response I'm getting. Is I, I will never look at addiction in the same way again. Sure. Was this therapeutic for Linda? I'm sorry, what? Was this therapeutic for you to write this? I'm not sure I know how to answer that. Hmm. In a way, um, I suppose it was. It was certainly not at all 
part of my motivation in right. reading it. Right. Um, but I, I suppose there, there was an element of that. And, and there's a certain value for anyone in catharsis, I think, just getting things out. Yeah. That, you know, this is part of who I am, and, you know, there it is. I've got to accept that, and, and that's fine. The book is The Weight of a Feather, A Mother's Journey Through the Opiate Addiction Crisis uh, by our guest, Linda Hacker-Arouse. You can get this book on Amazon. It's also available on Kindle. Um, we've been giving you the the blog page, but we want to give you the main website too, weightofafeather.com. This is the book, A Mother's Journey Through the Opiate Addiction Crisis. Um, what is your hope uh, in writing this book for the reader? What is your hope for them? Well, several. Uh, for parents, I hope it will give them um, a sense of companionship and hope that there's light at the end of the tunnel, even though the, it may be years that you're walking through darkness. Um, the recovery is possible, and sometimes you just need to hang in there and keep your relationship with your child and be there for him or her. Um, for other people, I've been giving the book to politicians and people who are not connected because it puts a face on addiction. It humanizes addiction that it's not just a bunch of numbers and people and statistics. These are real people that you, you cross paths with in the grocery store, in the post office, in, at work. Um, and there's millions and millions of people going through that. So for them, I hope it it kind of gives a better profile of addiction and in some way moves them to be more compassionate and perhaps support some of the legislation that's going through. So those are kind of my main ones. And I also wanted to, through the book, and you see it in different places, say to the people who just have gone into recovery, it's a difficult step, I mean, that initial transitional period, but to let them know families do heal. We get over it. Um, relationships can come back together, perhaps in a different way. But, you know, it is no matter what you did, families can form a chapter two together, and it can be a good chapter, and people will be supportive of each other, and, and trust can be reestablished. It's often lost, but it can be reestablished again. So I wanted to provide that sense of hope for people who had just, you know, started on their road to recovery also. Amen to that. So how's your son doing today? He's doing good. Um, he still, you know, is honest about saying that, you know, every day he has to focus in on that, mm -hmm. um, his, his own sobriety. It's not something, and I think he's learned this along the way, you can't get comfortable and say, oh, well, maybe I'll do this. Maybe I'll try. You can't do that. You've got to just have a, you know, a very clear uh, barrier in your mind to say, I'm not going back there. Um, but he's, he's in college now. He wants to go into the medical field. Right now he's in a nursing program, but wow. I don't know if he'll go into that or something else. He, he, he likes science. He likes the idea of reaching out and helping other people. So... Somewhere I think he'll find the path and somewhere not discipline one way or the other. Sure, sure. Dave, do you have any other questions for our guest? Oh, I think you, you, you asked them all that I could think of at this moment. I would just 
<laughs> I, I, I would. I just want to. That's a very good question. I would oh, just yeah. like you know to uh, thank you for for writing this book and encouraging parents. I think that's probably one of the the most lacking areas is uh, the education piece for the parents and the support for parents that are going through this too. And for the people that are in recovery, especially early recovery, um, the message that you, you were just talking about, about that families can be restored and trust can be gained back because that's, that's the other side of that coin that, that needs to be, you know, people need to be encouraged, like, don't give up, you know? Yeah. Recovery is possible. Yeah. Restoration is possible. Um, yeah. Uh, this does not have to be a death sentence. It just doesn't have to be. No. No. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm proof of that myself. Me so too. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, I'm glad to see there's more people out there that are, that are compassionate about, about this and not just part of this revolving statistic. Yeah, right. Right. You don't have to be. <laughs> yeah, the statistics, I, uh, I don't, they can be skewed. Every which way that you can think of to fit whatever model you have. When I was in treatment, or actually after I got out of treatment, I went back to the treatment center that I was uh, that was at, and uh, to bring back uh, an outside meeting. And one of the things that I would always talk to those guys about is the statistics. I said, you know, you know, you you can't listen to that stuff because I know at the time they were saying like, I don't know, it was like six percent uh, success rate. And I was like, "You're if you want to be a statistic, you can fall into that. You got to rise above that. And you got to rise moving. above that, and yeah. not everyone could could be successful. Um, you just have to put in the work, right? Because that's it, it's about the work. You know, it's about sticking to it, being diligent. Uh, it's about doing this every day. You know, our recovery is based on our daily spiritual condition. Yeah, and, 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 yeah. Go ahead, Linda." I know. I think it's wonderful that the reco- there's kind of a recovery movement of now of people in recovery reaching out for to help people who are starting out or, you know, sort of in that questioning period. There's peer advocates and family navigators and just people offering to be sponsors. And I think that's wonderful the way the whole recovery community has said, you know, I, it's not just about me, it's helping out somebody else. And I think that's important, that support as you go through. Um, and I credit that with a lot of the success for people that, you know, if in a moment of doubt, they have somebody they can call and say, this is what's going right. on right now. And there's somebody stronger there who could say, you know, I've been there, let me tell, you know, let me meet with you, let's talk, something like that. And, and people people are, 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 are no longer hiding in the basements of their churches and meeting halls in the name of anonymity, um, walking around like they have to keep this thing a secret. I mean, anonymity does not mean secrecy. Uh, True. You know, and I, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, the video Anonymous People, for instance. Right. It, it's time to stand up and say, you know what? I, I, don't, I don't care what you think here. I'm going to tell my story, I'm going to share my story, and I'm going to be available to those um, who would need my assistance, whatever that means. Is it is it a ride to a meeting? Maybe it's something as simple as that. Um, right, right. 
you know, is, is it pouring coffee at the meeting? Is it uh, maybe it's financial support? I mean, there's there are places where you can donate. Um, you know, you yourself, Linda, I mean, this has been a, a journey for you, right? You've had to get some help oh, with this, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it touches, I mean, it's a family thing. It just doesn't happen with the world of those who are in it. It happens in the world of everybody that's around it. Uh, right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things I remember, Dave, um, years ago, my brother-in-law, who is still waiting for the ball to drop in my life years <laughs> later, you know, um, I remember him saying before Marsha and I got married, just keep in mind that this addiction thing with Monty, it's not just going to affect him. It's going to affect our whole family. And at the time, I was very uh, combative about that, you know, because he and I were not getting along. But he was absolutely correct. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It, same on my family. You know, I, my wife and my, my two daughters, you know, it affected them uh, dramatically. And, I mean, we, me and my wife spent a few years apart. Um, but we're, you know, we've been back together for a while, but I remember when we first got back together, um, it was probably three, the first year was the hardest. Yeah. Because my, my family was like, you know, when, <laughs> when's the other shoe going to drop kind sure. of thing? It's like, sure. well, sure. you know, reacting how they reacted to me. Back when I was in my addiction, yeah, and I wasn't, so right. I had to like buckle down and just say, okay, this is just their process. I can't react the way that I used to because all this is gonna, all that's gonna do is perpetuate the same, you know, thought process. So, so it was difficult. Can you stay on guard? Oh yeah, it was. Person it comes was, back, you're on guard because you don't want to get hurt again. Right, right. Yeah. It was that first year was was tough, but it was. It took probably a few years after that. Um, that to for it to really really settle down. So Linda, Linda, let me ask you uh, as we, we start to wrap this up here today. Um, what what have you been doing for Linda for for your own sanity and and your recovery? Really, um, have you been plugging into support meetings? What what's your story? Well, I feel pretty comfortable going in, and I'll explain my direction is. I work in advocacy. I, I'm in Albany, near Albany, too, not your Albany, but Albany, right, New, Albany York. New York. Yeah. Of course, it's the capital um, to work to help support legislation and get funding and treatment. I'm on the board of directors of the local um, Pathways to Recovery group. Um, I volunteer on a helpline, and I, you know, I feel very satisfied mm. in being able to you know, play those roles and do my part. Um, I, you know, with the whole thing with the book, I just had such a wonderful time meeting new people. And there's been so many people who have really gone the extra mile um, to help me out and who, you know, really understand the importance of stories, whether it's people in recovery or families who've gone through that, that those stories have power. So, um, and of course, I you know I'm a country person, so you know, and we own a lot of land, so I, you know, I just love yeah, um, you know, being out in you know in the woods on the lake. We own a lake 
Um, so that has always been a part of me, and that's always been kind of as a support for me, and although it sounds funny. Um, I enjoy these places I go to where, you know, I have my sense of peace also. So you're giving back, you're plugging in, you're doing the service, and uh, that is uh, really, that is that is huge. That's a huge piece uh, for any of us who've either been directly affected by addiction uh, or our family members or friends of addiction is to be a part of something where we're giving back. Um, we know that's a gigantic piece in the recovery community as well. So one, one last question I have for you is how did you come up with the title? I love the title of the book, The Weight of a Feather. Tell us about that. Well, it's funny because the book had a title before a page was ever written. It was always called this. This is the way it came to me. Mm. And it, it actually um, is an ironic title. It, it comes from a verse in the Bible. I don't know if a few people pick that up, but it's true. It comes from Psalms. Um, he shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings mm. thou, thou trust. And this is kind of an underlying theme that, you know, just as trying to stand by your child, you know, God tries to stand by people as they go through things. But the irony of the title is, of course, the weather ha- a feather has no weight, essentially no weight at all. And yet, if you look at it metaphorically, feather representing the care and protection of someone, the weight of trying to care and protect someone going through an addiction is incredibly heavy, mm. incredibly heavy. Yeah. So that was the irony of it. But I can't think that it came from me. It just always had that. And then months later, I started writing it. So y- you and I talked off the air the other day about your faith. And uh, we are a Christian-owned and operated recovery radio station. And uh, your higher power, if for lack of a better phrase, is Jesus Christ, right? Right. And so I know you, you, you guys attribute uh, a lot of this to, uh, to the Lord. Uh, is your son on the same page with that? Is he? Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, he, and he will say that um, the whole time he was in detox, and apparently it was much easier than he ever anticipated, was that he constantly prayed. Wow. And wow. that he credits that as to the difference between what he went through and the, what other people have gone through. Right. Right. Well, amen, and definitely all praise and glory goes to our Heavenly Father uh, for the marvelous He's worked, uh, work He's done in your life and in your son's life, your, your entire family. Uh, and blessings to you for uh, publishing this book and getting it out to people. Uh, folks, the website is weightofafeather.com. Um, the blog site is opiatecrisis.com commentary.com. We'll have links to both of those up on our main page at take12radio.com. Linda, any last comments or thoughts from you? No, other than uh, I've enjoyed this and uh, any opportunity I have to reach out to people is something that I, I always welcome. And I certainly appreciate your you know invitation to talk with you today. And yeah. for anyone listening who's going through this, I offer you my encouragement that um, you know, you never walk alone through this. And, you know, you have to have that faith and courage to, to, and patience to let it take its own course um, and reach the, you know, the destination yeah. that, that you need to get to. Dave, any closing remarks? 
I, I again, I just want to thank you, Linda, for uh, for uh, what you're doing out there and uh, for your book. Uh, it's going to touch a lot of people. Yeah, amen. All right, well, Linda, stay on the stay on the phone here. We've got a closing song. Uh, this song is entitled "Surrender." It is by our uh, good friend and recovery recording artist Amanda Broadway. Here's Amanda. see through the muddy waters in me I can't catch the thoughts between the lines Nothing seems right to define these Feelings in me are like broken glass I'm treading on Another night from dust to dawn Then another morning comes And nothing, nothing changes Yeah, I know Time takes time, so I accept that just for today I am broken and I'm afraid Afraid of surrender I've made, I've trampled love and run away I've hid from insecurities Still I can't find relief of this Indigestion with the clog in my emotions I lay down on my pillow And the tears fall Cause nothing, nothing changes Yeah, I know Time takes time, so I accept that just for today I am broken and I'm afraid Afraid of surrender
Amanda Broadway and her song, Surrender. All right. Many thanks to our guest uh, on this episode, Linda Hacker Arouse. And her book, Weight of a Feather, you can visit her website at weightofafeather.com. Please check it out. Please get the book. And once you've done reading it, share it with someone else. Until our next broadcast, this is The Monty Man along with Dave Fleming. And a special thank you to our guest, Linda Hacker Arouse, for her story of experience, strength, and hope. We are wishing God's perfect serenity for you and reminding you that because of God's incredible grace, you are entitled to overcome. This has been a broadcast of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting.